Hey everyone, this is part two with Dr. Neda Ashtari, resident physician at Yale New Haven Hospital and strong advocate within the Access to Medicines movement. If you haven't listened to part one, go back a week and listen in because in that episode, we dove into the really crazy, deep, hidden truths of the pharmaceutical industry and you really don't want to miss it. In this episode, part two, Netta gives us the scoop on how we as the consumer can escape having to pay exorbitant prices for essential medicines. She talks about some ways we can get involved to become advocates ourselves and also gives a few tidbits of advice to take into our daily lives as a consumer and patient in the future. I have to say that this conversation was not only so fun because we laughed so much, but it was also so incredibly informative. I'm so thankful to Netta for her time and for you, of course, for listening in and being so supportive of this podcast. My name is Hethel Bauman, and this is the Global Health Pursuit. Netta, welcome back to part two of our series. In part one, we talked a lot about we were very, very negative. I mean, everything was very doom and gloom. And we talked a lot about the problem in pharma companies, basically, how are they marketing, you know, how much money that they're using on marketing. I mean, the physicians that are basically getting paid off, right? And then the big myths that pharma companies tell consumers on why these prices are so high. Now, We're going to turn it around because obviously we want something to look forward to and not have nightmares about when we go to to bed. So this episode is going to be all about how, how we can escape as a consumer. Now, the first question I want to ask you, Netta, is has the U.S. government implemented any plans to lower these drug prices? And actually, before I even ask you this, if you're listening and you haven't heard part one, go and listen to part one, because that will give you all the context of what we're talking about in this episode. Okay, great. So, so yes, partially. So the U.S. government has implemented or, or started to implement the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which was signed under the Biden administration. And you know, this was a really watered down version of what we talked last time, which was Medicare negotiation and competitive licensing. And essentially, the idea is if you have a big buyer like government entity, Medicare, which is one of the biggest drug purchasers in the U.S., you have more negotiating power, right? So you can say, you know, we can buy 70% of insulin and we're only going to buy it at $20 versus $100. Mm. So you have a lot more power in setting those prices. Unfortunately, this law was meant to apply to a a broader number of drugs and to a broader number of people. But right now, the Inflation Reduction Act essentially does a few things. It only applies to Medicare beneficiaries, importantly, though. And then in terms of what it does, the first provision is it allows, starting in 2026, for the government or Medicare to negotiate drug prices for a certain subset of Mm -hmm. drugs. And initially, that's 10 Medicare Part D drugs starting in 2026, and that number is incrementally increased year by year. And these are only going to be the most expensive drugs as determined by the Medicare spending. So you look... So so you said... 
Part E drugs? What does that mean? So Medicare Part D is just the, it's basically the prescription drug benefit part of Medicare. And again, none of this would apply to you and I, and it wouldn't even, you wouldn't need to know this because you're not over the age of 65. Mm -hmm. And so this really doesn't help people like you and I. It's not a surprise that the older white men in government passed a, passed a <laughs> law that would lower only their drug prices. Um, so, I mean, we can, but yeah, that's what Medicare Part D is. It's a prescription drug coverage. And another thing that it does is it caps the cost of insulin for Medicare beneficiaries at $35 a month. Again, I can't think of a lot of people over 70 or in their 70s using insulin, but that's mm-hmm. fine. Another part is that it caps out-of-pocket drug spending to $2,000 a year for Medicare beneficiaries. And it also actually makes drug companies that raise the cost of drugs faster than the price of inflation pay rebates to Medicare. So they're kind of being mildly punished. That is really the only thing that this administration and the administrations before it have been able to accomplish to lower drug prices. And and we obviously haven't seen the effects and whether this will lower drug prices. You know, one of the negative things about this is if you're limiting the amount that a drug company can increase a drug per mm-hmm. year, you have to wonder, are the drug companies then just going to start with much higher prices than they already did? Oh, my God. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. So when they're lowering these but, drug prices, is it like a certain percentage that they would go? Because you said there was a cap. Yeah. So it's basically the rate of inflation. So you can, so almost all drug companies are raising their prices faster than the rate of inflation. And as of now, we don't do anything to stop that. And so this would essentially cause them to pay a rebate or basically pay a tax back to the government for that. And then states though have taken some actions to lower drug, but the federal government has not. In terms of what the states have done, one of the big pieces is price transparency. Mm -hmm. And 14 states have passed laws around price transparency. And these have different requirements. So this can be anything from making any one of the stakeholders that's involved in the really long, convoluted drug manufacturing and distribution process, making them publish their Mm. costs. And that will actually allow governments to step in because they'll know how much it costs to produce a drug. So right now, if the pharmaceutical companies are not telling us how much it costs to make a drug, we have no negotiating power. We have no ability to say, they could say it costs us $4 billion to make this HIV drug, but it could just actually cost two cents. And we wouldn't know because they are not required in most states still to publish anything regarding the actual cost of developing a drug or bringing it to market. With price transparency, you know, they these laws are still pretty limited in what they require, but they do give government stakeholders more power to say, okay, you can only increase your price of drugs by X amount because we're looking at your receipts and we mm-hmm. can see that, in fact, things did not cost you 20% more in X fiscal year, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the things, price transparency. When you say how much an actual drug costs to make, is that specifically just like the raw materials of the drugs and the, you know, the I guess the raw materials of the drugs, or is that also including the labor costs, the, all of the other things? Like what, what does that all include? Do you know? Yeah. So when we're talking about like from point A of basic science research happening in university laboratories 
to point E where drugs are being sold at the pharmacy to you and I. Really, the price transparency comes in much later, right? Because drugs, drug companies recoup those research and development costs very early upon bringing a drug to market. Mm -hmm. And yet they continually raise the prices for 10, 20 years after that, right? So let's take insulin, for Mm -hmm. example. Insulin has been around for over 100 years now, right? And every year, we're still seeing increases in, in the price of insulin. Are they making new insulins? No. I mean, maybe slight changes in formulation here or yeah. there. But there's not new research and development happening in the laboratory. It's just insulin. These companies are just price gouging. They are basically raising prices at whatever the market will bear to maximize their profits. And this price transparency essentially forces them to show us, hey, why are you, what is your justification? For increasing. Mm-hmm. And if you have no justification, then we're not going to allow our health plans in this state to pay more than X amount for your drug. So it ha- they have to be justified is the idea behind these kinds gotcha. of bills. Okay. And then the other thing is affordability boards and, and really... Jennifer Nash, she works with NASHP, which is the National State Health Policy Program. And she says that drug affordability boards are one of the most powerful ways that states are lowering drug prices. And these basically look at the cost of drugs that different payers in the states are spending. So let's say you have Medi-Cal because you live in California, which is our Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. And it says, okay, Medi-Cal is spending $1 $1 million a year on Humira for arthritis. Is this justified? And if not, then it will make recommendations to the state on, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z to rein in the cost of this drug because it's costing taxpayers too much money. So drug affordability boards are another key piece. Other than that, though, you know, there isn't very much happening because you still have, I don't want to get doom and gloom, <laughs> but you still have the huge, huge lobbying power of these companies versus people like me who are medical students or or other grassroots organizers who are working to to drown out their voices. And so it's really hard to get government officials to take action on these things. Yeah, you can't just call them and be like, hey, can you please lower the prices of all these drugs? <laughs> I mean, you can. And if people did, we would win. I, I mean, if people mm-hmm. went to town balls, if people actually did go t- and tell their representatives, like, will you commit to not taking money from lobbyists. Like, what if we all did that? What if every single person went and publicly asked a lawmaker, don't take money from lobbyists. Can you commit to that on public television right now? I mean, we would, their hands would be tied. What are they going to do? They publicly say, no, I'm going to continue being in the pocket of pharma companies. So I think that there is hope, but it just takes people getting out there and actually doing the work. That's so true. Wow. So, okay. So now we talked about the government and if they've implemented any plans. Now, what can we do as like consumers going to get our drugs every day? Like, what are some things that we can do? What are some uh, resources for us? Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A- Click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. 
Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so there are a few resources. The first would be manufacturing copay cards. So these are basically cards that are that are issued by Pfizer or Stellis or big drug companies. And they're only el- only patients with pride eligible to use these mm-hmm. cards, but essentially they cover the copay for this subset of patients who are eligible under whatever policy they have, which will be found on their mm-hmm. website with regards to a certain drug. So those manufacturing copay cards are one tool. Another tool are coupon programs like GoodRx. And I think that every single pharmacist by law should be required to tell consumers about good RX, but unfortunately that is not the case. And I constantly see people being Can I ask off you about that? Without. So what benefit does it give the pharmacist to not recommend using a service like good RX? So sometimes they good RX coupons actually result in the pharmacy losing money because Essentially, the GoodRx prices are set at what pharmaceutical benefit managers or PBMs are able to negotiate for pharmacies. So these are basically, think of it like the wholesale cost of drugs, right? And so you're supposed to then mark up that price and sell it to consumers. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is we're showing them, hey, I know the wholesale cost and I want, I'm going to spend this coupon so that you give it to me. So we're taking away kind of some of that markup profit that they would Mm -hmm. get. That's why. And I also just think a lot of them, I don't know, I don't want to say don't care. I'm not sure why they don't, because it's not like they personally suffer. I mean, you still have a job at CVS. So I don't really know why individuals do not feel compelled to help people with drug prices. But I think that, you know, every single person needs to be aware of GoodRx. On average, you can save 80% on your drugs. And actually, a lot of people, even with private insurance, PPO insurance, will will save more using a good rx coupon on their phone than they will under their own private insurance plan. And so it's an incredible resource for patients. There's no eligibility requirements. You can use it with or without insurance. You can use it if you're the wealthiest person or the poorest person. It doesn't matter. It's good for everyone. So give an example of like the price difference. Yeah, so you could have um let's say an EpiPen which is, you know, for allergy attacks, go from $356 to $15. And that is something you will commonly see. Yeah. And, and, and you can see from, you'll, they'll see a bunch of pharmacies and it will show, you know, CVS $15, Rite Aid $10, Albertsons $30. And you see even these, these are all the prices that each individual pharmacy is able to negotiate. And that's why you're seeing those price differences. So you can drive to the cheapest pharmacy and get your drug there and save hundreds of dollars. So good RX, good RX, good RX. Good RX, good RX, good RX. I should make a little jingle. I'll be like, go to good RX. Like, they probably have I mean, I want to be their, their poster boy. So, <laughs> oh my God. Um, the other thing that you can do is the other patient assistance programs. And so these are something that pharmaceutical companies use to extend their monopolies, honestly, but they are in the short term a good solution for patients. Essentially, you have to apply to allergen and say, hey, I need help affording my Botox or whatever. I mean, I don't think that's something you 
assistance program. They'll be like, you, you don't would. need Botox, but okay. Hey, I really need it for my face. <laughs> but, so you would essentially apply for a patient assistance program and they would, um, it's also called a drug donation fund. And so they will give you a limited supply of the drug. One of the issues with these programs is that they essentially have been shown to increase the amount of brand name drugs prescribed to patients because mm. doctors will be like, oh, well, there's a patient assistance program for brand mm. name Botox instead of switching to the generic overall. So they actually, there's a reason why pharmaceutical companies engage in these patient assistance programs, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but they can be a good short-term solution. And then the other thing is just, you know, getting into state and federal programs like Medicaid. So if you need insulin and you're Medicare beneficiary, you're in luck suddenly. If you are on Medi-Cal, you have zero copays on any drugs that are, you know, manufactured and distributed in this state. And typically, the obviously, those are really limited to low-income populations, but they can be really, really cost-saving in those situations. Mm. Okay, awesome. Now, I know that you spoke about your advocacy work. Talk to us about your group, your grassroots group, what it's called and what your guys' mission is. Sure. So my group is called Universities Allied for Essential Medicines or UAEM. And we are an international organization of student leaders and advocates who promote access to drugs worldwide innovation for drugs that treat neglected diseases and empowerment of students across the world to fight for these issues. So specifically, I tend to work most on the access piece. And what that means is we focus on the fact that universities and public research institutions are using our public taxpayer money in the form of NIH Mm -hmm. and Department of Defense grant to develop these drugs that are innovative and life-saving And these things should then be available to the public who funded their development. That is what we believe in and what we fight for. And, you know, we talked about the issue last time of how these universities typically don't have affordability stipulations Mm -hmm. when they sign agreements with drug companies so that drug companies step in and they mark up the price and everything becomes unaffordable. And so what we have done is we worked on an affordable access plan, AAP. And so the AAP is something that I helped develop with an organization called the Medicines Patent Mm -hmm. Pool and also other leaders across universities allied for essential medicines. And this is a provision that we've added to university licensing agreements that essentially says every time a pharmaceutical company comes to UCLA or Berkeley to buy one of our drugs, they must state when that drug comes to, gets approved by the FDA, they must state what their plan is to make that drug affordable in low and lower middle income countries around wow. the world. Yeah. So it builds in, it builds in this conversation about affordability as a necessity of commercialization. It's not an afterthought. It's not something we have to protest later once these life-saving drugs like Xtandi, the prostate cancer drug, becomes unaffordable in India and around the world where we have to rah-rah and fight for years and, you know, thousands of people die. Now it's proactive. So we're saying from the moment that you come and you tell us you want our innovation, you have to then tell us how you're going to make it affordable to us down the line when it comes to market. And so that's really what what has been the crux of my work with universities allied for essential medicines. And excitingly, Berkeley 
recently adopted the AAP and and expanded it to apply to to U.S., to underprivileged communities in the U.S., which is really, really monumental. And most recently, last week, UC Riverside adopted it, and we just started conversations with Yale, which is the new school that I'm going to. I was like, hey, haven't gotten there yet, but going to protest starting now. <laughs> Netta's going so to, her, to, Shanetta has her, she's starting her residency at Yale. So little round of applause. Yay. Yeah, they're probably like, what have we got? <laughs> <laughs> And so we've started conversations outside the UC system. And this is just a really big step for universities because, as we know, almost all drugs that we use today, they come from public university labs. And so the idea that we're going to make sure that what comes out of those labs is affordable across the world is a really, really big one. And then the other thing that UAM works on is innovation. And by that, we're referring to the fact that 80% of universities in Canada and the U.S. spend less than 2% of their research funding on neglected diseases. Neglected diseases are diseases that typically affect the world's poor or developing countries like Leishmaniasis, Chagas disease, dengue fever. These are are diseases that unfortunately no one is interested in developing cures for because there's no market to buy these drugs in the countries that are most affected, right? So I'm not, if I'm a pharmaceutical company, why would I make a drug if I can't make millions of dollars off of it because the people who are dying from this are too poor mm-hmm, to buy mm-hmm. the drug? It's a really, really sick, yeah. twisted. I just had an interview with somebody who was talking just about this, where it was like these neglected tropical diseases are almost like, they're targeted towards neglected people who are impoverished because of this. It's so interesting. And they're debilitating, which I'm sure your, your host talked about. I mean, we're talking limbs loss. We have, you know, filariasis, blindness. These are debilitating, preventable diseases. And it's really, truly devastating. And, you know, another big issue that comes up is we, over the past 30 years, despite increasing antibiotic resistance, have not developed a single antibiotic. So, and and the reason is they're not that profitable because once you give somebody an antibiotic, then you've cured them of the infection. Mm. And so you can't continue to make money off of it. And so we are trying to, we're trying to push researchers and public universities to focus on these diseases that affect over 2 billion people in the world um, that have unfortunately been neglected for far too long. And one of the ways that UAM is doing that, most recently we set up an innovation fund, which anybody listening to this podcast is more than welcome to apply to. And essentially this innovation fund funds the research of students and researchers who want to focus on neglected diseases at their universities. And our hope is that we are sponsoring these people who forth and do the good work that needs to be done and who share our values and that we're going to fund a new generation of of good little research advocates. (laughs) (laughs) Good little minions. (laughs) Good little minions in the lab. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. So when you said that when a company or pharmaceutical company wants to develop a drug at your university, they need to basically sign on the dotted line to say, okay, this drug is going to be available in low middle income countries, even if they don't have the necessary funds to pay for these drugs. Now, like, how does that get carried out? 
That's a great question. So there are multiple ways that companies can implement an affordable access plan. One of them, a less ideal way would be, let's say we're going to set up a drug donation fund so that 1% of our profits from Humira goes to selling the drug in low and lower middle income Mm -hmm. countries. That's one option. The option that most universities have gravitated toward, though, is using the medicines patent pool as a partner. The medicines patent pool, like I briefly mentioned before, is a patent pool, which essentially means they work with drug companies like Pfizer to sub-license a drug and oversee its manufacture in low and lower middle income countries. Mm. And this is how it all works. So essentially, let's say that a school says, okay, well, we won't, we won't enforce our patent in India so that people can have access to this drug to extend Well, that doesn't actually help the people in India because there's not enough of a regulatory agency. There are not enough resources. There are not the manufacturing plants. And there's just not the research power that there is in the U.S. to be able to even create, manufacture, or or distribute these drugs. Mm -hmm. What the medicines patent pool does is it actually makes sure that generics are manufactured in those countries. Mm by working with the local manufacturers, generics manufacturers, to help them develop the drug to ensure that it's, that it is quality and that it has basically up to par to the quality and safety standards of the U.S. and make sure that there isn't parallel trade, which is essentially the fear that pharmaceutical companies have that cheap Indian drugs are going to flood the U.S. market and European markets, and they're going to all become poor. And I don't even know what their nightmares consist of, but that is what their nightmare is. And so, yeah, so the the way that, just to kind of summarize, so right now, the UCLA will sign an exclusive license to a pharmaceutical company, okay, Mm -hmm. which means that only that pharmaceutical company can manufacture and sell the drug. Mm -hmm. But with the medicines patent pool, that drug company can sub-license to the medicines patent pool to allow for them to produce generic versions of the drug in low and lower middle income countries. Does that make sense? Yes. Wow. (laughs) It's a very complex topic. It really (laughs) is. Just to get to, you know, some of the successes of the medicines patent pool. So almost every single HIV drug that has come to market has gone through the medicine, has been sub-licensed to the medicines patent pool and has therefore become available in African countries where they weren't previously available at all. And, you know, in the case of hepatitis C and also HIV, sometimes overnight, the cost of a drug has decreased 30 times because of a sub-license to the medicines patent pool that allowed for generic production of a drug. In Egypt, they did a sub-licensing deal with one of the pharmaceutical companies. I forget. What, I think it was Glasgow Klein. They GSK. Had, yeah. I can't yeah, even exactly. say their full name without being like. <laughs> they reduced the price of a hepatitis C drug by 90% when they sub-licensed to the MPP. And so sub-licensing is a, is a, it's basically the technique that we have always used in global health crises to make drugs available in low and lower middle income countries. And that's because it's so effective. So then these drugs, they're sold in these in clinics that are basically in these low and middle income countries. Okay. Yes. And so these drugs, so Medicine Sample has relationships with generics manufacturers, which you and I wouldn't have heard of their names, but 
generics manufacturers in these countries. And so they help them make an HIV drug for $10, which is sold mm. here for $300 in the U.S. Wow. I mean, we're not getting a great end of the deal. <laughs> I know, but, you know, it's like, is it? There's no way that the drug companies are going to give up their U.S. and European markets. They're, they're more willing to let go of, you know, not even India usually, like, but some countries they are willing to allow this, but not the U.S., unfortunately. Maybe one day. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> we got to be hopeful. Positive, positivity. <laughs> All right. So last question, Netta, I want to ask you, what really, what advice would you give to patients and our listeners who are listening to this episode today? So I think the first bit of advice is don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. So nice. Drink the Kool-Aid, meaning if there is a company advertising a drug to you and says, talk to your doctor, remember only U.S. and New Zealand allow for that to happen. And remember, if a drug worked, it wouldn't need to be advertised to you on television. The doctor would give it mm -hmm. to you of their own accord. So just remember what I talked about last time, which is that drugs that are the least effective and the most unsafe are the most likely to be advertised on television and radio. This is a fact. So don't drink the Kool-Aid. Do not listen to these commercials. Do not fight your doctor and ask for these drugs. Your doctor wants what's best for you 99.99% of the time. So just listen to the, your doctor and not to the people who have an incentive to advertise and make money off of you. The second thing would be feel free to look up your doctor using Dollars for Docs, which is a ProPublica resource, and check to see if that doctor... So, okay, bottom line for today, dollars for docs and good RX. Wait, now you have to explain what dollars for docs are because I don't no. even know what that is. No way. No. You go to doctors else doing dollars <laughs> for docs? That's insane. Oh, my God. Yeah, so dollars for docs is a ProPublica resource, and they use claims submitted to the CMS, which Center for Medicaid Services, and they basically publish how much money your doctor is taking from pharmaceutical medical device companies. And they are truly a life-saving resource because I have exposed so many doctors. It, within my own university, the attending, our advisor for the oncology interest group, he takes like $200,000 a year from pharmaceutical companies for absolutely no justification. Because keep in mind, these are not research-related dollars. These are not the doctors who are doing research and therefore they're getting research payments from the companies. These are non-research payments, meaning this is the opioid epidemic. These are the doctors who are taking the money that caused the opioid epidemic. And you should look up your doctor every single time you go to a doctor, because if not, do you want to go to a doctor who's making direct profits off of the thing that they're prescribing you? I don't. I mean, I'd rather just stay clear because there are lots of ones who don't take money. So I just, I always tell, I've even told patients sometimes who see these oncologists, I go up to them in the hospital and I say, don't tell anybody, but I would definitely transfer to City of Hope because your oncologist here is taking $300,000 a year from drug companies and is more likely to enroll you in a clinical trial under that drug company instead of giving you the gold standard or the most effective treatment for your disease. So there's really twisted motives sometimes. My <laughs> mind is so really blown right now. Yeah, you should look up your doctor. I, mean, I literally just did. Is it okay? My family medicine doctor? 
Yeah. I mean, family med is typically pretty. They're like the good people. I would say oncologists are the ones to look well, out. My for. family med is thirty dollars. That was okay, like back in two thousand eighteen. Yeah, exactly. That's probably a meal. They're probably and I mean, if they even reported that, because the doctors have to, they're the ones who report it. Then they're a good soul. There's no family medicine doctor out there ripping people off and saying we're talking dermatology, urology, all the surgical spells, cancer doctors, which is the most devastating. I mean, our department of urology at UCLA collectively takes like over a million dollars from drug companies just for like the five department chairs. And you can even see what drug companies you can see their like trace their stocks and their share. It grosses me out, but it should something everybody should use. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Wow. Pro public by dollars. Yeah. Good RX and dollars for docs. Yes. And then. The last thing would just be, you know, get involved in in these causes. It's not going to change if you just sit at home. You know, what do they say? The thing is in the television, not the street. There's a saying. So You're saying doing some it's, work. It's, it's the saying that doing nothing. The media message or something. The revolution is not televised. That's what I was. The revolution <laughs> is not te- televised. Have you heard that? No. You're like blowing my mind. Netta, are you Gen Z, by the no, way? No, no, no. <laughs> You're not Gen Z. Okay. It's going to be like, is that a Gen Z thing? Because I don't know. No, this is wow. old school, like rock. Vietnam War thing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm down with the people. <laughs> No, it's just, you know, get involved. If you're a university student, join University's Alley for Essential Medicines. If you are like me and you're really focused on policy and legislative work, find out what drug bills are being pushed in your state and contact that office and ask, hey, how can I help? How can I get involved in your coalition? Every single representative has the same exact email addresses, first.last at send.state.gov. So you can easily reach out to your representatives and find out how you can get involved in their legislative work. You can join other organizations like Patients for Affordable Drugs or Prescription Justice or Public Citizen. Those are all advocacy organizations. AARP does incredible work. So find out how you can get involved, you know, in any way that you can. There's space for everyone in this movement. Not everyone has the time or the energy. Not everybody has the certain skill set, but there's something for everyone to do in this in this space and really we're all going to get sick and so we all need to be working to lower drug prices i'm not going to get sick yeah no me neither i'm the healthiest person anyone has ever what is it trump said he's, like, <laughs> he's the oh healthiest God, 85 so year old man i've ever seen all right <laughs> also i have a resource sheet that i want to send you. It has all of those resources like the good rx the patient assistant and it came out um i got it by dr hussein leilani who works at harvard's portal program we put this together and it's a really great resource for patients and so i'm gonna send that to you maybe you can post it on your episode notes i will i will definitely put that on my show notes and then all of the information everything that netta talked about that will be on the show notes so go and check that out and then also her information if you want to reach out to her tell her how much she's blown your mind by listening to this episode yeah because uh i feel like i'm like the emoji like the mind blown emoji (laughs) right now because uh really this was really really good netta thank you so much for taking the time i know you're very busy no i'm not really doing much but thanks for (laughs) (laughs) you could have been like yeah i like you know it took me a very long time to fit, fit you into my schedule 
Yeah, we no, I'm on com all day today. <laughs> nice. Thanks um, for having me. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you loved this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.